Uh, This morning we're going to be back in the book of Genesis, continue our study there in chapter 17. And those of you who may have already kind of checked your bulletins this morning and flipped open your Bibles to kind of preview our text for today should already be asking a really important question from the outset, which is why do we need chapter 17 of Genesis? If we were just judging from the section titles in our Bibles, most of our Bibles include these sort of labels, section headers. Mine calls verses 1 through 14 here as God confirms his covenant with Abram. Uh, It titles verses 15 through 27, Isaac's birth promised. And so you might, like me, uh, be wondering, wait a minute, I thought God already made his covenant with Abram back in chapter 15. What was all that stuff about walking through the blood path? I thought God already promised Isaac's birth back in chapters 12 and 13 and 15. Is God just repeating himself here in chapter 17? Or what is new? What's new? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, I found 13 things. You see in your bulletin there. So much for last week's three-point sermon. 13 answers to this question of what is new in chapter 17 of Genesis. Most commentaries and sermons We'll title this chapter, uh, The Covenant Confirmed, as I said. To confirm is simply to validate uh, or to uh, make, uh, to sanction, to ratify, to make binding by some formal act. And so God does do that. God does confirm his covenant here. But I think he goes beyond that. And so I've titled this message, Covenant Clarified, instead. To clarify is to make clear or intelligible It's to free from ambiguity, and specifically, God clarifies his covenant here in chapter 17 in 13 new ways, 13 new facets of the covenant that God is going to introduce for the very first time here in this chapter. And so, as always, our aim here is not merely interpretation, it's uh, it's application. It's not enough for us to leave with just a nice history lesson, with a better understanding of the Bible. We want changed hearts. We want this to be personal and practical for us. And for that, we need God's word and we need prayer. And so would you stand with me one more time as you're able uh, for the reading of God's word? I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 17. Go all the way. It's a long passage, so you know, do your stretches or whatever. Uh, chapter 18, verse 15 is kind of where this, this block of text finishes. So hear the word of the Lord. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of their sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your generations. 
This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight, eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you. A son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Now chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When Abram saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant." Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you've come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you 
about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would meet with us here now. Holy Spirit, that you would be with us as we interpret and understand and seek to apply and live out your calling on our lives this morning. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart now be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so the first new development of the covenant here in chapter 17 is a new name for God that we get in verse 1. The scene opens on Abram, who we hear is now 99 years old. You will remember when we left off in chapter 16, after Abram's affair with Hagar and her subsequent conception and then birth of Ishmael, uh, uh, Abram was 86 years old. And so God has made Abram and Sarai wait an additional 13 years after that faithless attempt to shortcut his plan for a child. But when God finally reappears here to Abram, in chapter 17, he reintroduces himself for the first time in the Bible as God Almighty. The Hebrew is El Shaddai, very important name for God in Scripture. Kent Hughes notes El Shaddai signifies God's power and his sovereignty. It is the name that is used some 31 times in the book of Job to encounter that man in the midst of his trials. God is saying here by invoking his name El Shaddai, I am able to fulfill the awesome hopes that I've set before you of a people and a land. He tells Abram, don't let go of the promise just because of your old age. Don't take matters into your own hands, Abram. My hands are more than capable. And so friends, if we were just make this personal practical for us, we might ask ourselves, how mighty is God for us? If an impartial, object, objective observer was asked to examine our lives for a week and extrapolate from our faith how mighty God is as our lives attest to him, would they conclude that God is somewhat mighty? God is mighty when, when we come to the absolute end of ourselves and we know we're out of our pay grade, then we'll turn to God in faith. Is God mostly mighty, very mighty, or is God all mighty. I love the rhetorical question that God asked Abram at the end of chapter 18, is anything too hard for the Lord, for El Shaddai, for God Almighty? Where might God be asking us that same question in our lives this morning? Is anything too hard for me? Put me to the test. See that I'm able. Trust me. I've got this. Number two, God places a new expectation on Abram here. Verses 1 and 9, verse 1, God immediately follows up his self-revelation as El Shaddai with a new demand of Abram. Walk before me and be blameless. We saw this last week. Your theology determines your identity, determines your action. If God is almighty to you, that means that you and I are not 
the sovereign plan orchestrators. Abram, you are not the sovereign plan orchestrator. That is my job. Your job is simply to trust and obey me, God says. God says, chapter 16, that whole affair that you had with Hagar, immediately after I formed my covenant with you in chapter 15, that was not a great start, Abram. So let's try again here in chapter 17. Let me be absolutely clear this time. Clarify the covenant. Verse 9, God says, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. Be blameless. This time, Abram's response is better. Verse 3, Abram fell on his face in humility. To which God replies in verse 4, Now that's what I'm talking about. That's more like it. Now, behold, my covenant is with you. And again, likewise, you and I ought to use this as an opportunity this morning to, to just kind of check ourselves on our living up to God's expectations, to, to walk before him and be blameless. Do we trust and obey God? What do our actions reveal about our identity and therefore our theology? That's the thing. See, if our theology determines our identity, determines our actions, then the reverse is also true. If we want to know what we actually believe about God, our actions necessarily reflect and reveal our true identity, necessarily reflect and reveal our true view of God. We may think that we believe that God is all-powerful, but if we never pray, if we're always just quick to take matters into our own hands, then what does that really say about our actual view of God? You can think of any number of other practical examples this morning. We may think, to use a current one in our current conversations, you may think that you believe that we're all created equally in God's image, that God cares about every human life equally. But what about black lives? What, what goes on in your heart in this current cultural moment? What about the lives of the unborn? Will we act differently if, if you know, a, certain subset of our population is just being systematically slaughtered before our eyes. What about the lives of LGBTQ folk? Does every life truly matter to us, church? I mean, how, how, did, how did you respond to Pride Month back in June? Do we get out our soapboxes and bark condemnation at people who don't even know their right hand from their left, as God says of the Ninevites in Jonah 4? Do we have the same attitude as Jonah? Are we upset that God would even ask us to care about such people? If God called us to go evangelize a gay pride parade, will we sooner board a ship bound for Tarshish? This is kind of real-life, practical, accountability check questions that we need to ask. God has expectations of us, friends. Do we really believe that God desires that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance? 2 Peter 3, 9. All should reach, and that we are his instruments for reaching them. If we're not actively evangelizing, bearing witness, then we don't actually believe that. It's really that simple. Our actions reveal our true theology. Number three, God bestows a new blessing and a new name on Abram here. The new blessing is that he will be exceedingly prolific. God has already promised him in chapter 12, I will make of you a great nation. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But now he's told in chapter 17 verse 4 that he will be the father of a multitude of nations, plural. 
namely Ishmael's and Isaac's. God promises to proliferate both sides of Abram's uh, lineage and family tree here. Verse 2, I will multiply you greatly. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And in light of this new blessing, God now confers on Abram a new name as well. Verse 5, no longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. That's what Abraham means. Kent Hughes explains, in the psychology of the ancient Near Eastern world, a name was not merely a convenient means of identification, but was intimately bound up in the very essence of one's being. The Bible views name-giving, changing, as symbolizing the transformation of character and destiny. Abram's name had meant exalted father and referred not to the patriarch, but to God. But when his name was changed to Abraham here, now it referred to the man himself as the father of a multitude. And the same is true of all the other character names that God is, is changing in these chapters. He strategically uses people's names to remind them of his good promises to them. Every time Abraham is tempted to be frustrated and untrusting and impatient again, God wants him to hear in his very name, good morning, father of a multitude. You ready for breakfast, father of a multitude? Every time Ishmael feels insecure and unloved because Sarah is going to convince Abram to kick Hagar and Ishmael out of the camp in chapter 21, but God wants Ishmael to feel comforted and cared for every time he hears his very own name. Hey, what, what would you like for lunch today? God hears. It's nap time, God hears. Every time Abraham and Sarah call Isaac in from playing for supper, come on in, he laughs. God is reminding them that while we may laugh at him in our faithless disbelief that he is able to work miracles, God turns around and laughs at us at just how little of his plan and his power we actually see. Again, what about us? What about our names, our identities? What does it say about our theology? Do we recognize this morning that if we are in Christ, we've been given a new name? I think of the lyrics to that, that great song that we sing some Sundays together here. I am chosen, capital C, like our new name is chosen, not forsaken, no longer. I am who you say I am. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Verse four, uh, number four, and we'll move more quickly through some of the rest of these for sake of time. God makes Abraham a new promise here in verse six. Verse six is kings shall come from you. This is new. Again, both branches of the family tree. God promises in verse 20 that Ishmael will father 12 princes, and obviously there have arisen uh, out of the, the Muslim people historically any number of, of rulers and kings out of Ishmael's lineage. But Ishmael's 12 princes are meant to parallel the 12 tribes of Israel through the line of Isaac and then Jacob, and beginning a thousand years after Abraham, out of those tribes, and in particular out of the tribe of Judah, God will raise up kings from Saul and David and Solomon through the divided monarchy all the way down ultimately to the greatest king of all time to come from Abraham's line 2,000 years after him. But I'm going to save him for our conclusion. Number five, we discover a new duration of the covenant in verse 7. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. 
God had promised Noah back in chapter 9 that the common grace covenant, never to flood the world again, would be an everlasting covenant. But this is the first time we hear of the everlasting, eternal nature of God's covenant with Abraham. It's important. Verse uh, number 6 and verses uh, 7 and 8, this one's very important. There's a new level of investment here from God in Abraham, in his life, in his future. New degree of God's personal investment. God covenants in verse 7 to be God to you. And then he declares the same to Abraham's offspring in verse 8. I will be their God. Prophet Jeremiah unpacks this promise for us more in chapter 32, where God vows, Jeremiah, they shall be my people and I will be their God. What does it mean? It means I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will rejoice in doing good to them with all my heart, with all my soul. And John Piper calls this the most astounding promise in all of Scripture. Piper writes, it boggles the mind to try and imagine what it must mean if the God who made the planets and the stars and the galaxies, the molecules and protons and neutrons, electrons, rejoices to do you good with all his heart and with all his soul. If God is God for you, then all of his omnipotence and all of his omniscience are engaged all the time to do good for you in all the circumstances of your life. Paul says in Romans 4.13, the promise to Abraham and his descendants is that they should inherit the world. Forget about a patch of dry land in the Middle East. The world, 1 Corinthians 3.21-23, God promises us all things are yours, whether life or death, the world, present and the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. That is amazing. Friends, God just promised us that to the extent that we belong to Christ and Christ is God's and everything belongs to God, right? That means we are heirs to it all. This is Abraham's adoption moment in chapter 17. When Polly and I adopted Elijah, we took a vow that we would treat him as our own son, that we would afford to him all the rights and privileges of a natural-born Duval child. That's what God does here for Abraham, to be God for Abraham and for his descendants. And who are Abraham's descendants? Galatians 3, 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It's us. Us. Number seven, God commands a new sign of the covenant in verses 10 through 14. The sign, every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, we could spend an entire sermon just unpacking circumcision. It's become sort of standard practice for us with our baby boys in the Christianized world, but we just need to pause here for a moment and realize, appreciate just how bizarre. And horrifying this command would have been to Abraham. Like, I'm sorry, God, I must have misheard you. It sounded like you said you wanted me to cut off part of my what? Come again now? Let me just quickly give us five reasons that God commands this new sign of the covenant. I've alliterated them for you. 
Number one, it's sanitary. Circumcision is hygienic, so there's a practical dimension here. It reduces one's risk of both STDs and UTIs. It reduces the risk of both penile cancer in circumcised men and cervical cancer in their female partners. And so there's health benefits to circumcision. God is a God of life, so it's just good practice for Abraham. Number two, it served to set Israel apart. Not a lot of folks opting voluntarily to nip the tip here 4,000 years ago. Even 2,000 years ago, you think about when Jesus himself was circumcised. Imagine visiting a public Roman bath as a Jewish man. Circumcision would have served as a permanent, visible reminder of one's Jewish distinctiveness. Number three, it's a sign of submission. Many Jewish theologians actually discourage folks from even offering explanations for why circumcision, because the only one needed, they say, is that God said so. Obeying this command for Abraham must have felt so contrary to every self-protective instinct in him. Imagine being 99 years old and reaching for that knife. The only possible explanation, Sarah, God told me to. I don't know. Number four, it is sacrificial. Circumcision hurts. As with all of God's covenants, there is blood involved here. That's why for every male after Abraham, God graciously commands that you just get it out of the way on the eighth day. This is not a moment you want seared in your child's memory for the rest of his life. Listen, it was so cool that I got to circumcise Elijah on our kitchen counter on the eighth day. A side note, if anyone wants to come over for lunch today, you're welcome. We'll wipe down the counter. But it was even cooler than that is the fact that he's not going to remember it. Because if he did, we would not be friends. It hurts. Talk about nightmares. Circumcision is God saying, it's going to cost you something to be a part of my covenant family. And finally, number five, most importantly, circumcision is symbolic. Psalm 51.5 states, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We call this original sin. We were all born sinners. We were conceived sinners. King David, who wrote that, Psalm 51, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was not saying that he was the product of some illicit sinful relationship. He wasn't. He was just the child of two sinners, And just like two cats make a baby cat, two dogs make a baby dog, two sinners make a baby sinner. And circumcision is God reminding us, saying, even in your moments of greatest ecstasy in this life, in the bedroom, even in your greatest joys of finally holding that baby boy in your arms, I want you to be reminded of your need for repentance. That you are sinful to your very core, to the very deepest, most private parts of you. And I want to symbolically call you to cut that sin out of your life. And everyone who won't, who refuses, verse 14, shall be symbolically cut off from my covenant people. Number eight, God bestows a new name and a new blessing on Sarai as well. In verses 15 and 16, Sarai is told this, you you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Both 
Sarai and Sarah mean princess, but commentators will note that Sarai was the possessive form of Sarah, my princess, and so the change in name here suggests she will no longer simply be royalty in the eyes of those who named her, her parents, daddy's little princess, but she will like actually be a princess now of nations. Verse 16, I'll give you a son by her, she shall become nations, kings of people shall come from her, call her royalty. However, number nine, this amazing promise from God is met with a new depth of doubt from both Abraham and Sarah. They already do not have a stellar track record of trusting in God, you'll remember from chapter 16. But here in chapter 17, their skepticism reaches an all-time low. We hear that Abraham fell on his face, not in humble worship this time, but in scornful derision. He laughed in disbelief. And Sarah follows suit in chapter 18, verse 12, when she overhears the promise. Sarah laughed to herself. Can you imagine laughing in God's face? That's probably why Abraham fell to the ground and Sarah hid behind the tent flap because you probably couldn't bear to literally laugh in God's face and live to tell about it. But Abraham goes so far here as to suggest yet another alteration to God's plan. And just when you thought that Abram had had finally learned his lesson, he has the audacity in verse 18 to interrupt God mid-promise and suggest a different plan, essentially rebuke God. He says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, I know you're powerful, but come on, Sarah is 90 years old. She's already been through menopause. Even you aren't that powerful, surely, God. El Shaddai, Almighty. And God responds to both of them, Abraham and Sarah, by rebuking them back. In chapter 17, he says, No, Abraham, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. Oh, and Sarah, over in chapter 18, what are you laughing about? What are you laughing about? And Sarah, ashamed, like a kid who just got caught red-handed, sort of peeks her head out of the tent in verse 15. And then she has her own audacity to double down and try and lie her way out of it, lie to God's face. She says, I didn't laugh, God. It must have been the wind. You must be hearing things. I don't know. So God rebukes her too. No, but you did laugh. And that's how the scene ends. But fortunately, that's not how the story ends because despite their faithlessness, and we go back to chapter 17 now, verse 19, we receive another clarification to the promise, number 10, a new child. Despite their faithlessness, God still remains faithful to his promises. In verse 19, you shall call his name Isaac. It's the first time that God actually names this long-awaited child and heir of Abraham. And judging from Abraham's response in verse 23 of obedience, I have to believe that this is the moment when God changed Abraham's heart. When when, When Abraham stopped laughing and started actually believing. Names were so significant. This is almost like their version of seeing your baby on the ultrasound. For the first time machine. Like, 
whoa, this just got real. He's got a name, Isaac. And yet, as we noted last week, God's promise of redemption doesn't mean that he just erases all the consequences of our actions. And in Abraham's case here, one of those major consequences, number 11, is the formation of a new nation. God says, as for Ishmael, I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. I'll make him into a great nation. So God's foreboding prophecy of the rise of Islam that was only veiled in chapter 16 now becomes clearer here in chapter 17. And number 12, perhaps just as significant as God's revelation of the new name, of the new nation, is God's new self-imposed deadline for Isaac's birth that he announces in verse 21. There's a new deadline now. Sarah shall bear Isaac to you at this time next year. Finally, after 24 years of waiting, and remember, that's just since we met Abraham and Sarah back in chapter 11 when Abram was already 75 years old. Presumably they have been hoping and praying and waiting and trying for a child of their own for their entire married lives to this point. 80 plus years we're talking, hoping, waiting for a child indefinitely, open-ended. And Polly, my wife, would often say while we were fighting our own battle with infertility for years, she would say I could accept it and move on if I just knew for certain that we would never have kids, have that closure, right? If I could just know for certain that it would take 10 years, if I had a deadline, it's the not knowing that's so hard. Abram and Sarai have dealt with the not knowing for eight decades until now. God finally says, next year, the shot clock is on. And it is this confirmation, this clarification of the covenant by God that ultimately sparks number 13, Abraham's newfound obedience. We hear in verse 23, he circumcised his household that very day. And later in chapter 18, verse 8, Abraham ran out from the tent door to meet these mysterious three men who come to visit and bowed himself to the earth. He, he acted that day. He's bowing in humility and worship again. He, he, he's got a new obedience. And by the way, did you notice the them there in chapter 18? I really could have added a 14th point to our bulletin, a new theophany, a new God sighting, visible manifestation of God in the flesh. This is the first time God shows up visibly to Abram, at least in human form, while Abram is actually conscious We had the thing back in chapter 15 with the smoking fire pot. But notice how God reveals himself here, chapter 18, verse 2, as three men. And yet, Abraham addresses them, them, in verse 3, in a singular voice. He actually calls them Lord, O Lord, Yahweh, He addresses them in singular verb tenses. What's going on here? It's three and one. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's right here in chapter 17 of Genesis. It's right 
there in chapter 1 of Genesis. We, we already looked at the creation account, the Trinity. God has been revealing his Trinitarian nature to us from day one. Let us make man in our image. And I said it last week, God's work of redemption did not start with the birth of Jesus. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been at work since day one redeeming our messes. Amen? And as usual, that is who this entire covenant clarification has been pointing us to all along. All 13 of these clarification points ought to be pointing us to Jesus. That's why they're there. Jesus is the new and most precious name of all for God. Yeshua, he saves. We need a God who's not just El Shaddai, all-powerful. We need a God, Yeshua, who is loving enough to save us from our sin, to step into our mess. Jesus not only calls us to walk blamelessly like God does here, Jesus actually rose from the grave to give us the power to do it. It's actually possible for us to please God and live by faith now. Jesus bestows on us a new name and a new blessing. We are adopted sons and daughters of the Most High King. Jesus is the climactic fulfillment of God's promise for a king. He is our long-awaited king. His covenant lasts forever. Jesus is God's proof that he puts his money where his mouth is when it comes to being invested in our lives in a deeply personal way. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. You don't get more invested than that. And yet, in our sin, like Abraham, we responded to Jesus with our own doubt and our own new levels and depths of skepticism, so much so that we nailed him to a cross. And yet, like God, in response to Abraham's faithlessness. Jesus responds to us with yet more grace. While we were yet sinners, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he died for us. He died in our place. And today, friends, Jesus is offering you and me something better than a new child, something better than land, something better than a new nation, than a new deadline. He offers you new Life, eternal life in him. And he's even left us with a new sign of this new covenant offer, baptism. Baptism symbolizes God's circumcision of our hearts. That's where we need to be ultimately circumcised. That's what it means to be God's covenant people today. Baptism signifies your decision to die to yourself, go in the metaphorical grave, in order to be raised with Christ to new life in him. And just like God, here in Genesis 17, Jesus is calling us this morning to a new obedience. It is the same obedience of faith that he's called us to all along. 1 John 3, 23. This is God's commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And so I ask you this morning, friends, have you, will you, in faith, believe, receive Jesus' new covenant offer of eternal life in him?
Let's pray.